Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. You know how some carriers give you so little for your older busted phone you just end up living with it? I don't think so. Verizon lets you trade in your broken phone for a shiny new one. You break it, we upgrade it. You dunk it, doggy bone it. <laughs> Slam it, wham it, strawberry jam it. We upgrade it. Get a 5G phone on us with select plans. Every customer, current, new, or business. Because everyone deserves better. And with plans starting at just $35, better cost less than you think. Hey, folks. <clears throat> folks, today is Tuesday, December 28th, 2021. Coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, she says a democracy is in peril in the United States if the Senate does not pass uh, voting rights legislation. Also, uh, there are 10 major Senate races taking place uh, in 2022. We're going to examine those uh, and look at whether Republicans or Democrats uh, stand a chance of winning those. That could very well determine who controls the U.S. Senate uh, after the midterm elections. Also, Congresswoman Cori Bush, she says that to honor January 6th, the day of the insurrection, throws the Republicans out of Congress. Also, uh, on today's show, a white man who admitted driving into a crowd of Black Lives Matter protesters will not serve any jail time because he participated in a pretrial diversion program. Also, as COVID sees more kids in the hospitals, the stress becomes more challenging for nurses. We'll talk to a nurse practitioner who explained why the current healthcare system is at its capacity. Also, we'll talk to the 15-year-old CEO of Gabby Biles in our Marketplace segment, sponsored by Verizon, a teen entrepreneur, recently opened up her own salon in Columbia, South Carolina. Folks, it is time to bring the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Let's go. He's got it. Whatever the miss, he's on it. Whatever it is, he's got the scoop, the fact, the fine. And when it breaks, he's right on time. And it's rolling. Best believe he's knowing. Putting it down from sports to news to politics. With entertainment just for kicks, he's rolling. Yeah. 
All right, folks, welcome to Roland Martin Unfiltered. As we end 2021, the issue of voting rights continues to be the dominant political issue in Washington, D.C. On Sunday on Face the Nation, Vice President Kamala Harris uh, was on and she talked about the United States no longer being the beacon of light in the world if the United States is unable uh, to pass the voting rights bill that have been languishing in the United States Senate uh, the For the People Act, uh, as well as the John Lewis Act. Uh, here is some of what she had to say uh, on Face the Nation. So the president has also put you in charge of voting rights. Yeah. I've, and I've asked. Yeah. You asked it. You wanted this. I, you may know, I am a child of parents who met when they were active in the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. I, there is so much about this fight for um, justice and the ideals of our democracy that are part of just my DNA. And on the issue of voting, we have seen 18 at least states, over a dozen states, that have passed untold 33 laws that are making it difficult for the American people to vote. You know, I've been meeting with prime ministers and presidents from around the world. Um, one of my favorite interactions was with the now um, past uh, chancellor of Germany, Angela Merkel. She came over for breakfast. And we talked about everything that has to do with our relative security as nations and, and our priorities. And then she asked me about voting. She asked me about voting. And she knew what was going on here. And this is not a, a subject that was unique to my conversation with her, by the way, in terms of world leaders. Because people around the world watch what we do as America because we have held ourselves out to be a model of the efficacy, of the, 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 the ability of a democracy to coexist with an economic strength and power. We have been a role model saying, you can see this and aspire to this and reject autocracies mm-hmm. and autocratic leadership. And right now, we're about to take ourselves off the map as a role model. If we let, if we let people destroy one of the most important pillars of a democracy, which is free and fair elections. You're talking about what's happening in state capitals around the country. I am. And, and, but I'm talking about that. And I'm talking about what's not happening in this capital in Washington, D.C., which is the passing of the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act and the Freedom to Vote Act. We have to, we have to agree. And this is not about saying, you should vote for me or you should vote for Democrats. This is about everyone having unfettered access to their right to vote and, and, and agreeing that this is bigger than one election cycle. This is literally about our standing in the world. It's about the integrity of our democracy. And I do believe of all the things mm-hmm. that are on the headline news tonight, tomorrow, for the next week or months, when our kids look back five, ten years from now at this moment, it will be on our watch that we either stood for and fought for our, our democracy or not. And that, I think that is all at stake right now. But you still have the reality of a 50-50 Senate. Correct. And you have two senators who say they're not on board for changing the filibuster in order to try to push this through. So how do you overcome that democratic reality of not having the votes and not having a clear path forward? And you're right to talk about the, the structure and the rules of the Senate, and that is real. And we will do 
and look at whatever is necessary to push for Congress to take this issue on. And we have to. We have to. Uh, carve out to the filibuster. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that we are going to urge the United States Congress, and we have been, to examine the tools they have available to do what is necessary to fight for and retain the integrity of our voting system in America. It sounds like you're open, though, to a carve out to the filibuster to get there. I. You were when you ran for president on the issue of climate. I. Are voting rights as important to you? I believe that voting rights is one of the most significant issues that is facing us as individuals and as leaders today. There's no question. No question. Voting rights lead to every other right. Mm -hmm. Every other right. And so we need to prioritize it as a nation, all of us, and understand why voting rights are important and, and, and insist that our elected leaders preserve these rights. But Margaret, realize that what's happening right now includes that the entire Republican caucus of the Senate have voted against even debating this subject, even but debating so it. And I, I, I just, I, I think it's really important that in this conversation about what's happening in Washington, D.C. on the issue of voting, that we not lose sight of the fact that there is one whole group of people, half of the United States Senate, who are refusing to even debate this issue. Like, you can then end up where you are, mm -hmm. but stand up before the American people. State your position, defend your position, see if it stands up to logic and reason, or your stated or, or supposed ideals and values as, Amer as an American. But to that point, you were just in the Senate, and, yes. and the president spent decades there. How come you can't pull someone across the aisle on we this are or manage Joe Manchin within your own party? We are not going to give up on these issues. But you're right. It's a 50-50 Senate. It's a 50-50 Senate. And so, but it has to be a combination of us as an administration, but also everyone weighing in. And I'm mm -hmm. glad we're having this conversation. I think we have to continue to elevate the conversation about voting rights. Given the daily grind that people are facing, this may not feel like an immediate or urgent matter when in fact it is. And the more we have the opportunity to talk about it, the more I think people will see, yeah, I don't want an America of mm -hmm. the future for my kids to be an America where we are, 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 are suppressing the right of the American people to vote. So what do we do? Uh, let's go to my panel uh, to uh, talk about this whole thing. Xavier Pope, uh, he joins us, host of Suit Up uh, News, owner of the Pope Law Firm, Teresa Lundy, founder of TML Communications, Mustafa Santiago Ali, PhD, former senior advisor, for environmental justice at the EPA. Now, <clears throat> there, were, there were multiple interviews that went on this weekend. Um, President Joe Biden did talk about uh, him believing they could do a carve out for the filibuster. Uh, but, but here's the whole deal. That's great. That's wonderful. But at the end of the day, uh, Teresa, if you don't have uh, Democrats, uh, namely Arizona Senator Christian Sinema and West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin agreeing with that, it's still not going to happen. It's not. And so it's really incumbent of the Senate to figure out a way around it. But honestly, I think Joe Manchin and some of the 
um, others have been very clear about their objective and the objective is we're not going to pass this. So, I mean, I'm not sure what next steps can actually be done um, to get around this, but ultimately if they don't have the votes if the senate is not cooperating with one another if their own party is running a road then it is time for another plan there's time for another alteration of um I ideals or maybe there's something else that could happen um but i think at this time when we just don't have the votes um it's it's time to have that discussion on what you can do uh, to move forward to make sure that states have the protections they need in terms of voting rights. Uh, again, Mustafa, at the end of the day, uh, look, ain't gonna be no Republican votes. It's not gonna happen. And so this has to be done solely by Democrats. And so uh, President Joe Biden and Vice President Harris, they're gonna figure out some, they gotta figure out some way to convince their own party to go along with this. Yeah, you know, and President Biden continues to have these conversations, at least with Joe Manchin. I'm not sure if it's happening with Cinema or not. I assume that there are some conversations. You know, he has to continue to put pressure, uh, whatever that may look like. Um, but we also have to ask the question, when we see Reverend Barber, when we see Melanie Campbell, and when we see a number of other folks who continue to put pressure on folks on Capitol Hill, where's the rest of everybody else? You know, all the organizations that say that they support uh, you know, the democracy uh, and making sure that everybody has the right to vote. We have a responsibility also to be there and continue to push. We also have a responsibility to utilize our dollars in a more effective way uh, of not supporting um, some of the entities that, that continue to prop up these individuals. So, you know, it is people power, you know, being there and whether it's in West Virginia or Arizona or on Capitol Hill showing up. And then it is also about us using our economic power uh, to let them know that we do not appreciate the actions that they have not taken and that we will utilize our own actions uh, to make sure that we're continuing to place pressure on them. The, the thing here, Xavier, uh, is, um, I mean, it's really not that hard. Uh, and that is what you're dealing with is you've got these Democrats who are fearful that if they, if they do this carve out, then all Republicans can do the exact same thing if they get in power. Well, they've done it. Mitch McConnell did a carve out to put two people on the Supreme Court. They've done a carve out uh, to raise the debt ceiling. So it ain't like it hasn't been done. Yeah, Roland, just yesterday, Senator Rand Paul tweeted out how to steal an election, quote unquote, seating in an area heavy with potential Democratic votes with as many absentee ballots as possible targeting and convincing potential voters to complete them in a legally valid way and then harvesting and counting the results. In 2021, there have been 19 states that have passed voter restrictive bills. 49 states introduced 440 bills. It, we talk about selling bills to the, to the public. Uh, many people of the public think that Democrats protecting the right to vote is itself harming democracy when there's evidence to show this is exactly what Republicans are doing, to focus on the bills that have been passed in multiple states, what they say, how it impacts and every single voter is important to sell to the American public, as well as the dastardly deeds that have been done by the Republican Party that has to be trumpeted over and over and over again. When they've been in power, they've changed the rules to make sure they stay in power. Um, and that's the way uh, they actually uh, play the game. All right, folks, got to go to break. We come back. I'm Roland Martin Unfiltered. 
Uh, we'll talk about uh, the January 6th insurrection. Uh, of course, um, you have uh, the committee doing their work. Now you have Congresswoman Carrie, Cory Bush who says, hey, a great way to focus on that day is to throw out Republicans who were involved in the planning to overthrow the results of the 2020 election. What do y'all think about that? You're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered right here on the Black Star Network. Phenomenal. See, this difference between Black Star Network and Black-owned media and something like CNN. You can't be Black-owned media and be scared. It's time to be smart. Bring your eyeballs home. You dig? This is Essence Atkins. Hey, I'm Bianco from Blackish. Hey, everybody, this is your man Fred Hammond, and you're watching Roland Martin, my man, Unfiltered. Folks, 26-year-old uh, Devin, um, let me pull this up, please. 26-year-old uh, uh, Devin Trayvon Angel hasn't been seen since October 24, 2021. The Houston native is described as being 5 feet 10 inches tall, weighing 185 pounds, with black hair and brown eyes. Devin has a mark on his nose from chickenpox, a birthmark on his back, and a tattoo on his arm. Anyone with information is asked to contact the HPD Missing Persons Unit at 832-394-1840 if 832-394-1840. All right, folks, uh, this tweet um, was sent out by uh, St. Louis Congresswoman Cori Bush uh, on a couple of days ago. She said we should commemorate the one-year anniversary of January 6th by passing 
my H Resolution 25 to investigate and expel the members of Congress who helped incite the violent insurrection at our Capitol. Uh, sounds like a great idea to me. Now, keep in mind uh, what has been going on, uh, Mustafa. Uh, we now are hearing that Peter Navarro uh, said he, Senator Ted Cruz and Steve Bannon and others have recruited upwards of 100 members uh, of uh, Congress uh, to actually um, uh, take over, uh, to try to uh, throw out the results of the election on January 6th. Uh, and then returning to six states that Republicans control. Um, sound to me like they are admitting, admitting to an insurrection. Exactly. And that's why the House Race 25 is so incredibly important because it gives folks not only to have the accountability for it, the accountability also has to say that if you're caught with your hand in the cookie jar, if you're caught doing these types of egregious behaviors, then you need to go. You know, so treason is what treason is. And these types of actions definitely lead in that direction. I know to actually prosecute someone for a treasonous act has only happened a handful of times in our country, but nothing raises to a higher level than what we saw on January the 6th. And we put our trust into our elected officials to protect our democracy, to make sure that they're following the law, if you will. And for them to, to take these types of actions, to, to play a significant role with these domestic terrorists says that they are not interested in the positions that they hold, so they need to go. You know, the, the, the crazy thing here, um, uh, Xavier, uh, is that, look, they're, they're just openly admitting uh, to this whole deal. Uh, and so uh, what, uh, you know, what you're now seeing um, are individuals uh, who were very much involved uh, to try to overthrow uh, the government. And, 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 and look, um, the thing that jumps out here is that you know, there there were there were there were more there were people right now who are in power who who were involved, and that's the sort of action that needs to be taken of the toss these folks out. Yeah, Roland. I mean, Navarro openly said, "quote unquote," it was a perfect plan, and it all predicated on peace and calm on Capitol Hill. We didn't need any protesters because we had over a hundred congressmen committed to it. That's openly saying a hundred congressmen committed a terrible act upon this country and agreed to it. And now they're so emblazoned because they're defying subpoenas, uh, defying contempt, and just moving ahead without any accountability at all. I think it is incumbent upon our, us to move faster. We have a report potentially that'll be maybe coming out next summer about what's happening, but that'll be right in the middle of an election. And how will that be impacted in, about in terms of accountability? There needs to be some action and it needs to happen swiftly. Teresa, go ahead. I agree with the same sentiment. I mean, you know, as we look at some of the um, efforts that have been in Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, and of course the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and Wisconsin um, about the invalidation of even um, Joe Biden's presidency, but we also, you know, have to look at some of the um, the issues that has been happening since uh, this January 6th attack and the rollout from it. 
I mean, there has been an uncovering of so many conversations, so many text messages that has stemmed from the chief of staff of the White House during um, Trump's presidency, where it's like, you know, enough is enough and it has to be a stop. So I think if we're not holding our members of Congress um, to a higher, uh, well, really to their oath um, by utilizing our taxpayer dollars to do their jobs, I think we're, we're finding ourselves in this position where um, if they won't hold themselves accountable, how are they able to um, say that the American people should hold themselves accountable um, for whatever situation that we're going through? So, I mean, I think the trust needs to go back. Um, I think Congresswoman's uh, bill is something that um, we likely should probably uh, put on the forefront. Um, but I think, again, um, more pressure just needs to be um, given on all sides because, again, this is has been a stain in, um, on our uh, nation's capital. Um, this is the uh, story that is in the Daily Beast. Uh, Trump advisor Peter Navarro lays out how he and Bannon plan to overturn Biden's electoral win. Uh, and uh, what they did, he, he missed it clear, Mustafa. They were working directly with Texas Senator Ted Cruz and Arizona Congressman Paul Gosar uh, on what they uh, wanted them to do and what they needed to do to not certify the election. They placed themselves in this privileged position. And that's why you see these types of actions playing out where they think that they can share and say and do whatever without there being any repercussions. Um, and, and that's why we find ourselves in the situation that we do. It's because Republicans, uh, with the majority of Republicans, let me not just give a broad brush, um, have refused to take action for a number of years now when they see these types of things going on, whether when Trump was in office or now when Biden is in office. And, and until folks are actually held accountable, these types of things are going to escalate. People keep talking about democracy, but yet they don't truly care about democracy, that they care about you know, the ideal of democracy. But when it comes down to doing the hard work and holding people accountable, then they begin to take a step back. I mean, the reality here, Xavier, um, is that as far as I'm concerned, and, and I don't know what what Attorney General Merrick Garland is doing, but I think they're moving way too damn slow uh, arresting folks and investigating this. I mean, we're talking about approaching the one year anniversary. I, I mean, it, it, for you, uh, is Garland and his DOJ moving too slow? Does it take this damn long? Moving absolutely too slow, Roland. A report like this is caused to trigger Mary Garland to move along. And we talked earlier in the show about Republicans changing up the rules and one of them prevented Mary Garland from getting on the Supreme Court. Now we're not even so sure what type of Supreme Court justice he would have been. Um, he, he really has disappointed us over and over and over again. I know there's a legal process. It does take time, but democracy is at peril. And so it is requiring a nation to act like it's at war, because right now that's exactly what a coup is and what it represents to our democracy. And I think we need to be urgent about what that means to the republic. You know, Teresa, um, look, the DOJ can their investigation has nothing to do with the January 6th committee. I mean, nothing. They can move forward uh, with that. Uh, do you believe that Mayor, Attorney General Merrick Garland uh, is moving too slow when it comes to uh, prosecuting those folks involved? Uh, on the with the insurrection on January 6th. 
Absolutely. I think the evidence has been pretty clear from the beginning that there has been accomplices from within the elected offices um, of the of the White House um, in the Senate and in the House. And I think it's it's kind of alarming because I feel like this was something since it did um, make its mark on our Constitution that it would be something that would be readily and, and fastly um, investigated um, to the extent of the law. Um, I'm actually, I, I honestly, until we mentioned that, you know, January 6th is coming up, I didn't actually realize it. And so it's, it's kind of taken back, you know, to that moment of where, you know, how we all felt in that crisis, how, you know, our, our capital that literally just got finished being refreshed and replenished um, has been taken over, you know, by insurrectionists, by people that we probably work with, our neighbors, you know, some of them are friends if they're not in camouflage. These are the people that we, you know, speak to on a daily basis. And this is how they act on, on our constitution, on other people. And again, for us not to, us as a, you know, Merrick Garland, not to be in the urgency mode to, to understand that there is a huge crisis here that has to, you know, come, come to a conclusion. But right now, there it seems like there is no conclusion that is happening. It seems like, you know, everybody is just kind of dealing with other issues at the moment. And this is not um, a, a crisis situation that we need to deal with. But hopefully, um, I, I think they've been seeing, everybody's been seeing over time, the trickle down effect because of this. Because of this, we're not getting voting rights passed. Because of this, we're, we're getting ignored on other issues. Because of this, COVID-19 is still unfortunately unexplained and people are still not getting the vaccine. Um, but part of it is the overall overreaching messages People are not trusting our government at this time. Um, this um, this right here, you see this, uh, um, uh, Xavier, uh, Navarro writes, we see this, we told the Daily Beast, we spent a lot of time lining up over 100 congressmen, including some senators. It started out perfectly at 1 p.m. Gosar and Cruz did exactly what was expected of them. It was a perfect plan and it all predicated on peace and calm on Capitol Hill. We didn't even need any protesters because we had over 100 congressmen committed to it. Well, guess what? That's where that's where you haul his butt before Congress, mm -hmm. uh, and if it doesn't appear, slap him with a subpoena, stick his ass in jail, and say, fine, you're gonna sit in jail for contempt of Congress until you talk. That's exactly the quote I was talking about, Roland. <laughs> He's openly admitting and gloating, it seems, that we had, we had some help, we had people climbing over fences and breaking through security and all that and looking to hunt down Mike Pence and hang Mike Pence. But guess what? You know, we did this and we pursue this as something that we did was lawful. And I think that's the big portion of it. And also, we've had a 57% increase in Republicans who believe the big lie from January until now. And I think that the time that we're taking to move on it is actually turned now into a rallying cry. And now it's a political position that Republicans are taking so they can openly admit what they've done and say this is part of our strategy to win elections. Mm. Look, the, the thing here, Mustafa, is that these folks will do it again. I mean, let's be real clear. They're executing their strategy right now. They have no problem throwing out the will of the voters in order to cheat to win in 2022 and 2024. 
without a doubt. We saw the, the building of this happening around the country in state houses before it happened on January the 6th. So when people act like they're surprised, I'm like, well, where were you? How could you not be paying attention? We had individuals talking about kidnapping governors and, and doing all these other types of things and rushing into state houses. So we now found ourselves in this moment where, as you said, folks will do this again and again because there are no repercussions for their sets of actions. And until that happens, you're gonna to continue to be on edge because you're not gonna know when the next time it's gonna pop off. So if you're serious, then the Department of Justice needs to step up. And if we're serious, then people need to actually, as folks have said, need to spend some time behind bars uh, until we and pull them up to testify. And if they don't wanna testify, let them sit there. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I got no problem Teresa sitting there throwing their asses in jail. Uh, I mean, think about it. Susan McDougal. Look how long she sat in prison. Can you hear me? Teresa, go ahead. Okay. Yes. Um, sorry that um, it faded out, but yeah, I mean, look, if, if, if they can do it to everyday taxpaying citizens, American citizens, where, um, and, and again, this is probably Pope's lane when it comes to legal, but if, if, if you get subpoenaed and you do not want to actually testify, or um, I can't think of the word, <laughs> but um, essentially, if they, if the if Congress people do not want to follow the laws of the lamb, I do believe that there should be some consequences for their actions. It also should be a removal um, from their seat in representing their district. Um, I'm not sure if there was actually a poll conducted um, where, you know, at, at, it probably should be in terms of how do we um, hurry up the, the results of um, this report. Um, and, and I think it, I think if that report, you know, of the people was actually taken and surveyed and actually released, I think we would have a different conversation on the urgency of this rollout. But again, no one's asking the American people that what they're asking is representatives to just take an over uh, reaching approach and just say, hey, we're just doing our legislative duty, but they're not taking personal accountability. And I think if they did, we'll probably be in a different stance today. All right, folks, going to a break, we come back, we're going to talk about uh, a uh, man who struck Black Lives Matter protesters not going to jail because he participated in a pretrial diversion program. Also, impact of COVID in children. We also have new regulations that have been put in place as well. Uh, and the impact on the healthcare uh, industry, especially nurses, uh, it is being stretched to the seams. We'll talk to an expert about that as well. You're watching Roller Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Don't forget, folks, to download the Black Star Network app. We're available on all platforms, Apple phone, Android phone, Apple TV, Android TV, Roku, uh, Amazon Fire Stick, Xbox, uh, Samsung Smart TV as well. And, of course, you could join our Bring the Funk fan club with every dollar you give goes to support this show. Uh, you can give to us, folks, via Cash App, dollar sign, RM Unfiltered. PayPal is R Martin Unfiltered. Venmo is RM Unfiltered. Zale, rolling at rollingsmartin.com, rolling at rollingmartinunfiltered.com. Going to a break. I'll be right back.
When you study the music, yeah. you get black history by default. And so no, no other craft could carry as many words as rap music. I try to intertwine that and make that create the, whatever I'm supposed to send out to the universe. A rapper, it, you know, for the longest period of time had gone through phases. I love the word, I hate, I hate what it's become, you know, in, in, to this generation, the way they visualize it. It's narrative kind of like has gotten away and spun away from, I guess, the ascension of black people. Hi, I'm Eric Nolan. What's up, y'all? I'm Will Packer. I'm Chrisette Michelle. Hi, I'm Chaley Rose, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. All right, folks, uh, next year is going to be a huge election year, and we're talking about uh, a major year when it comes to uh, U.S. Senate races. There are 10 major Senate races uh, that we're going to be paying attention to. Uh, remember, right now, the Senate is tied 50-50. And so uh, who wins is going to determine the balance of who controls the United States Senate. That means who controls federal judges, who controls uh, appointments to uh, the administration. And so the key races we're looking at in Florida, you're going to have, uh, of course, uh, incumbent Senator Marco Rubio facing uh, Congresswoman Val Demings. Uh, in that particular race. A lot of money is being raised in that race. Rubio, of course, uh, is in the lead there, but he's going to face a stern challenge. The question is, can Democrats get their act together in Florida <coughs> where they've been decimated over the last three or four election cycles? Uh, also in Georgia, you're going to have uh, uh, Senator Raphael Warnock uh, running, uh, trying to uh, trying to uh, keep his seat. Uh, you've got, uh, of course, uh, Trump supporting Herschel Walker on the Republican side. He has to win the nomination, and so we're looking at that race uh, as well. You've got in Arizona, you got incumbent Senator Mark Kelly, uh, who is running. The GOP is really targeting that state, uh, and they're looking at supporting the Attorney General of Arizona uh, to face him. Uh, you have, of course, uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, where you have uh, an open seat there, where you have uh, the senator who is retiring uh, in Pennsylvania. Uh, and so you've got Democrats, uh, a lot of different people running on that side. Uh, Malcolm Kenyatta, the state rep, you also have lieutenant governor uh, who's running. And then, of course, you have Dr. Oz and other Republicans who are running uh, on that side as well. North Carolina is another huge uh, race uh, where you have uh, Tom Tillis, uh, who is, uh, sorry, Richard Burr, who is stepping down. Uh, but you have, of course, uh, Sherry Beasley, the former state Supreme Court justice uh, who is running. Uh, then you have several Republicans, including the former governor, Pat McCrory, uh, who is on that side as well. You got Ohio, uh, where you have an open seat. Rob Portman, he is uh, retiring. You have a uh, congressman, Tim Ryan, on the Democratic side and others who are running. Then, of course, you have Republicans uh, like J.D. Vance and others who are trying to run there. You've got uh, seats in New Hampshire. Again, Nevada. You got Wisconsin. You got the brother uh, who is lieutenant governor of Wisconsin who is trying to win the Democratic nomination in Wisconsin. Plus, you got Missouri. They're concerned there that, that if the former governor, Greitens, who had resigned in a sex scandal, if he wins a the nomination, they can hand that seat uh, to Democrats. Let's go to our panel. Uh, Xavier, looking at uh, all of these different races here. Look, these are statewide races, statewide races. Tough races uh, across the board. Again, uh, you have incumbents uh, in Republican incumbent in Florida. 
Democratic incumbent in Georgia, Democratic incumbent uh, in Arizona, open seat in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Ohio, where Trump did real well there. So Republicans hold a lead there. You've got New Hampshire. Then you've got, of course, battleground state Nevada, Wisconsin. And then you've got Republicans uh, likely leading in Missouri. And so it's going to take a lot of money. But also, if you're Democrats, you should be focused right now on a ground game. They should be holding town halls. They should be building up the momentum uh, going towards November and not waiting uh, until late in the election cycle to activate black voters. Roland, the reason why the ground game that you just spoke of is extremely important is because of the new voter suppression bills. And like I said, 19 states being passed is going to trust whether there's a fissure in our democracy and some of the, the data and polling that the Democrats are going to receive, they might not necessarily be able to rely on them because they could be impacted by the laws that are currently in place. And so, and we still don't know what's about the debate about how those voting rights will be protected. And so it is, they have to double their efforts to make sure there are as many people as possible that are getting out to vote, that there are any rules or regulations that may be impacting them in terms of their ability to vote. They'd be, they be able to address that, see it early, find the different communities or counties where they may be an issue and micro-target voters to make sure they're getting to the ballot box. You also got to connect the dots, um, Teresa, and that's what's important. <clears throat> and that is walking people through. So, for instance, uh, I saw a story today. I think it was uh, an NBC News story uh, where they talked about uh, how black voters have not abandoned uh, Biden, but they but they have some serious concerns. Uh, and, we, and of course, we've covered many of these issues. But when you start breaking down, um, you know, what is going on when you look at uh, these federal appointments, uh, how Biden has actually uh, made more federal appointments uh, in his first year than any president. Uh, he's tied Ronald Reagan. Uh, they're going to be advancing a number of more appointments uh, on Friday. And a lot of those appointments are also black female judges. Uh, they have to walk through, as far as I'm concerned, <clears throat> the issues. you got to make it plain. And also, what's going to happen if you actually are able to win? Here's what we do know. We know for a fact what is going to happen if Republicans win, okay, and then and that and I can tell you right now, if uh, Stephen Breyer decides to retire for the Supreme Court, Mitch McConnell ain't gonna fill that seat as long as he is in control of the United States Senate. Uh, they are going to shut everything down, uh, and so uh, so Democrats are going to have to make the case to voters, especially Black voters, why they should be elected in those states, and they really. They've got to activate black voters in Pennsylvania, the state that you're in. They've got to do a better job of reaching rural black voters in North Carolina. Uh, and they've got to really uh, do well uh, in Ohio as well. Really going into uh, Canton, going into uh, Columbus, Akron, Cincinnati, uh, Cleveland as well uh, in order to try to win there. You're absolutely right. And I believe we have had this conversation more than two years ago about the activation of Democrats and really the Democratic Party and releasing some of those funds and resources to states and to local municipalities um, that have their own you know, local jurisdiction um, prior to the midterms. Right. And so now that we're gearing up for that, you know, we're starting to see this overreaching um, waiting for, uh, I think, contact 
per se, right? I think most Democratic parties, they're kind of just silent at this point. Um, and they're just solely focused on some of these races. But I think what the Republicans were doing early on was once Trump had left, um, the office, they they were already in activation mode and seeing what states they already controlled and what seats they can actually win. So we, we, I'm looking for the Democratic Party to really step up, to start changing leadership that wants to do the same old thing, to really start putting forward thinking visionaries into position, to start spending more with Black and Latinx media, and also start bringing us to the forefront encouraging, making it plain, as you said. I don't care if it looks like Venn diagrams and stick figures, but let's make it so plain that people want to get involved and they can regurgitate some of the issues and also have solutions with it. Because if we don't do it now, we're, we're really going to be um, in, in a, a real upset in 2022. Mustafa, again, if you like, again, as we said, right now it is 50-50. Uh, and the, look, if Democrats are able to win that seat in North Carolina, now all of a sudden you go 51-49, you win that seat in Pennsylvania, now you're 52-48. Uh, let's say uh, you, you know, if, if you're able to hold on to Georgia as well. Then, then of course, uh, you know, you look, it's a statewide race. Republicans have tried to gerrymander Wisconsin as much as possible, but if they're able to defeat that, that kook Senator Rich, uh, Ron Johnson, now you're talking about 53-47. Now, remember, 53-47, why is that important? Because what you've now done is you've now taken power away from Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. Exactly. So, so, so that's why, so, so as I'm walking through the map here, people need to understand why these races are critical. It's going to be very difficult for Val Deming, Congresswoman Val Deming, uh, to beat Marco Rubio uh, in Florida because a uh, huge lead there, a lot much better Republican ground game there. Uh, and of course, Democrats have done horrible with Latino voters uh, in that particular state. But if you're Democrats, you absolutely are looking at picking off Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and I dare say Wisconsin. Those are the three critical gets for them. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. It's always tougher to, to end up uh, winning over top of an incumbent. But Democrats can actually win uh, and they can expand the Senate. And a lot of folks haven't been calling that out. Republicans have 20 seats that they have to be able to protect, and Democrats have 14 seats that they have to. Now, we understand there are a lot of different dynamics that are going on, and some of those seats, um, you know, are strongly held. But when it comes to Florida, Iowa, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, those are sort of those swing states, if you will. And, and folks can actually, if they do the work, if one, they make sure that they have a message that actually resonates with folks and is things that folks are actually asking for, then that's a step in the right direction. If they're willing to build the infrastructure inside of these states and to make sure, as we've called out time and time again, that the resources are making it to African-American media and to those organizations that are on the ground to make sure that they have the capacity that's necessary, then you have a much stronger positioning to be able to, to win on this. Now, the Democrats, we know Georgia, what's going on with our brother Warnock uh, and what's gonna be necessary to help him to get across the finish line. And we also know Kelly out there in Arizona Colorado and Nevada are the other two that the Republicans will go after. But here's what we haven't talked about, and that is the Trump effect. Now, Donald Trump actually gets into this mix, and he begins to, to play around in the primaries and get some of the crazier people uh, into those positions. And he actually still has enough influence, even though it is waning, to be able to be a, a factor inside of these sets of races 
then it also puts together a whole new set of dynamics and it helps Democrats to be able to, to win in some of these locations. Let me be real clear, uh, Mustafa, Xavier, uh, and Teresa, real clear. Um, the Republican Party is going to have tremendous enthusiasm on their side. Uh, all these Trump crazies, that there is no Trump party, Republican Party. It's all one party. And so at the end of the day, Democrats can't play this game. Uh, well, you know, I'm not quite so sure. No, understand there's going to be enthusiasm and you got to fight enthusiasm with enthusiasm, which means you've got to build that up. And if you're Democrats, you can sit around and bitch about, oh, we didn't get this. We didn't get that. I can guarantee you you're not going to get a damn thing if they take over the House and the Senate in, after the 2022 midterm elections. The enthusiasm, Roland, is also going to play out in being deputized to go to different polling stations and intimidate voters. And we also have seen, you know, we saw in Oklahoma where passing a law to protect motorists who drive into protesters. We are, they're, they're, we also talked about the lack of accountability at 1 6. We are at a point where we don't know if on election day that there won't be so much enthusiasm on the right that there's actual physical violence or threatened violence at some of these different locations and where votes are being counted, particularly if the races don't go the way of, that they expect them to go. Well, keep in mind, we can show at their, at their polling locations, locations too. too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, all, all that stuff, Teresa Fox News was whining and complaining about new Black Panther Party. All right, y'all want to do some show for their polling locations. They keep they, they keep passing these laws. All right, we can show with your stuff too. Absolutely, and I think we're just gonna have to find out. Unfortunately, you know, we're kind of at this point where we're just gonna have to see what happens. Um, but unfortunately, I think all the signs are written on the wall early on, so it's it's kind of incumbent of. Um, just even on the local level to see what happens. Um, Fox News has been doing an excellent job in getting the message out for uh, Republicans and making sure that their front runner candidates is at the forefront and making sure that those candidates are actually off their competitors' um, uh, television stations so they can keep their ratings high. So it definitely is a interesting network that they have that, uh, again, that has, has just been showing up. It's just been showing up in different forms. And, and, and y'all know this, boy, it's amazing how uh, Fox News, the right wing, they've just stopped talking about critical race theory uh, since the Virginia governor's race ended. Amazing. They got what they wanted. I mean, it's quite simple. We all knew that that was a part of a political strategy. Um, so, you know, we got to just make sure that we show up. We had a million black men who showed up on the mall for the Million Man March. It, it's time for a million men to show up at the polls, uh, polls in our communities and polls in other communities to make sure that folks understand that we have power and we know how to utilize it. And then we can also make sure that our Latinx brothers are also showing up as well, those who are interested in making well, sure. Well, you know what, I, I, Mustafa and, uh, and Teresa, both of you have used Latinx. I, I've been talking to Latina pollsters. They say they hate that, they hate that, they hate that phrase. They say they hate it. Only 2% of people identify with Latinx. Uh, even using the term, and some say it's a turnoff. So Apologies. we should just—I mean, they've literally been saying it. So should we? We should be actually just going. Look, I, I, Matt Barreto is one of the top uh, Latino posters. I asked Matt about that. He said, "Dude, he said 
that might appear to a few young people. He said, but frankly, he said we should be using Hispanic slash Latino. I'm black X. That's all I know. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not just saying that's just one of the things that uh, look, I, matter of fact, uh, I, I was because um, it was, was a story that came out uh, the other day and I was specifically asking him uh, about that. Uh, and uh, and he just said, he said, yeah, he said, nobody uses, he said, nobody uses, um, this is what he say, 60% uh, prefer Hispanic, 30% prefer Latina, Latino. Florida, they always use Hispanic. New York uses Latino. We use them interchangeable, but we rarely use Latinx. Most people are not familiar with the term at all. I've never heard a person that was, uh, that was Latino or Latin American or Hispanic call themselves Latinx. This is for us. And this we're trying to be in this PC culture where we want to maybe be able to, to label them a certain way, but if they don't want to be called that, that then, then don't call them that. And it's not if if, if a mama call them Clay, I'm gonna call them Clay. Uh, and so if they want to be Latinx, I mean Latinx Latino, they call them Latino. So if they want to be Latinx, we call them Latinx. Well, all I know is the folks who I deal with, you know, they have especially younger people have embraced the term Latinx, and if folks ask me. To, to identify them that way, that's fine. I have no problem with Hispanic, Latino, Latina. I have plenty of folks in my family who, who actually, um, you know, label themselves with those different types of terms. So, you know, again, when it gets to posters, you know, you, you just got to take everything with a grain of salt. For me, the important thing is that black folks and those brown folks who want to stand in solidarity show up uh, and make sure that we get the wins that are necessary. Because at the end of the day, um, we understand the policies and how they're going to play out if we don't. All right. All right, folks, hold tight one second. We come back. Uh, Omicron, uh, the numbers are exploding all across the country. Uh, and we are seeing the impact on our healthcare system uh, as folks are, te folks are testing positive. People who are unvaxxed are still going to hospitals. Uh, and it's causing serious issues with nurses. We'll discuss that next right here on Roller Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Peace, world. What's going on? It's the Love King of R&B, Raheem Devon. Hey, I'm Cupid, the maker of the Cupid Shuffle and the Wham Dance. What's going on? This is Tobias Trevelyan. And if you're ready, you are listening to and you are watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. All 
Folks, COVID continues to wreak havoc all across uh, the country. Uh, today, a few moments before the bowl game was supposed to start, uh, UCLA Bruins pulled out of a holiday bowl uh, against North Carolina State, uh, citing significant problems with COVID-19 and the various protocols. Uh, we are seeing uh, the Omicron virus have an impact all across. This is the fourth bowl game that has happened where one team has pulled out uh, of the bowl game. Uh, it has happened to the Sun Bowl, the Arizona Bowl, uh, several different bowls that have been going on. We also are seeing, uh, of course, uh, the stress of our system. Nurse practitioners, uh, they are in a high demand. Travel nurses, uh, as a result of what's going on, joining us now from Hartford, Connecticut, is nurse practitioner Wendy Garvin-Mayo. She's CEO of the Stress Blueprint. Blueprint. Glad to have her uh, on the show. Uh, you know, Wendy, on this uh, very issue we're talking about here, and that is, uh, again, COVID and, and how we're being impacted, uh, walk us through uh, what's happening with travel nurses. I know several. Uh, they've been spending, I'm talking about several months, uh, almost a year in some places because uh, of the demand for nurses. Yeah, so thank you for having me, Roland. So what I want to say about that is that I'm not sure if everyone knows that knows this, but the nursing shortage is a national crisis. We are definitely in crisis mode, especially with this pandemic. It's more. And, 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 and this crisis actually was before COVID. Oh, so yes, even, even before COVID hit, we, we saw a significant number of nurses who were retiring and then not enough coming into the field. Go ahead. Yes, absolutely. And, and because of that, um, you know, because of we're in the pandemic, nurses have left the field, which has really increased the nursing shortage. So travel nurses were used to really help fill that gap. But what you're seeing now is that utilizing travel nurses, and there's many articles out there that support this, is like putting a Band-Aid over an open fire hose. And they are still having the same issues that, you know, nurses are having, nurses that are hired by healthcare institutions, such as stress, burnout, mental and physical exhaustion. So Everyone is really feeling this um, impact of COVID-19, and it's only going to get worse. All right. So in terms of um, uh, in terms of where we are, OK, are we seeing a replenishing from nursing schools? Uh, what is being done? Is this the issue of pay? Is it an issue of just the grind? Uh, you know, so, so how do we confront this shortage? Yeah, so I want to break that down a little bit. So in terms of pay, travel nurses are paid a lot more than nurses who are hired by an institution. So a travel nurse in my city can make a half a million dollars in three months. Whereas a nurse who was hired by institution can make about $94,000, $95,000 a year. Right. So, so that's a problem that causes a divide in terms of pumping out nurses out of nursing school. Student students um, in nursing school now are being um, pumped out into the workforce. But my concern is, is that we really have no infrastructure to support them. We have nurses, um, nursing students who have graduated in December. We have another set who are graduating in May and they are coming into this crisis. And we are not talking about that enough in healthcare. How are we going to support these student nurses so that they can remain at the bedside and have a, a great career to really uh, close this gap on the nursing shortage? All right. So you talked about uh, that, that particular pay issue. Um, how does a travel nurse make half a million in three months? Well, they, they are offering, you know, 
about $4,000 a week, right, to be a travel nurse. Um, and this is public information. Anyone can go and look, look that up. And in different states, it's different rates. Um, and there was an article, uh, you know, that I was reading last night where travel nurses, you know, they're verbalizing, you know, making more than doctors, making more than surgeons. So they are being paid, they're being compensated. But what that does, it causes a divide in nursing. So if I'm working at a hospital and I'm hired by that hospital and I'm making $94,000 a year, and then you come and you're making a half a million dollars in three months, because usually the assignments can be for 12 weeks. So, so they, they're getting paid. So it, it definitely increases stress, increases, um, you know, mental strain on nurses, on the profession. But, you know, travel nurses are also feeling the same thing. So just because they are filling the gap, I don't think it's going to be for very long. Because despite how much money they're making, you can never replace your health and your peace of mind. Questions uh, from uh, our panel. We'll start with you. Um, Mustafa. Well, first of all, thank you. Um, I have a number of nurses inside of my family and I've seen the, the stress. I've literally seen people age over the last couple of years, um, which just blows my mind. My question to you is how do we better help to support uh, nurses? Uh, you know, on the mental health side, the, the stressors are just uh, mind blowing. So I, I'm curious, do you have any tips uh, of how we better help to support uh, the nurses who are under just extreme, extreme stress. Yes, I think one is recognizing it. And, you know, many institutions, I want to give credit where credit is due, do have programs in place where nurses can, um, you know, seek services. But again, that's taking away from work, taking away from family life. I believe that we need to actually have resources on the unit. So where nurses are on the unit, so a nurse advocate, right? And maybe someone who is a nurse. So like myself, I um, advocate for nurses in terms of stress management, mental and physical exhaustion, really empowering them to be advocates for themselves. Because many nurses who are on the front lines are there because they're advocating for their patients, but they don't advocate for themselves. So we need people actually on the units, on the floors, in the ED, who are, you know, making sure nurses are mentally and physically okay. But how many times are we assessing nurses for uh, stress, for anxiety, for depression, for PTSD? No one talks about that. But nurses are silently suffering from these issues, and not to mention their physical health that comes along with prolonged stress. So we need to really be assessing and addressing these issues uh, for nurses. And that can look different for, you know, every nurse, because every nurse is an individual. So that can be personalized. Teresa. Yeah. Um, one, thank you again for coming on. Um, I, I know this is a very difficult time. So probably my question is, I think you said there was resources and programs available. Um, so if, if people wanted to join the, the traveling nurses movement, um, how would they get involved? Where do they go? Um, and I if you could just clarify the half a million dollars um, piece, I think it's within three weeks or um, a half a year, that would be helpful. Yeah. So if people want to be travel nurses, there are agencies that hire nurses to be travel a travel nurse. And you can travel within a state. You can travel across the nation. You can travel abroad. And what happens is you get an assignment. So when I say assignment, you are assigned to an institution to work there for, you know, 
12 weeks, six months, you know, a year with renewal, right? You have to get that renewed. And in terms of salary, uh, if you actually Google this, you know, the amount a travel nurse can make, they can make anywhere from over $4,000 to $5,000 a week. So if you add all that up, that's almost a half a million dollars, right? Months, yeah. Okay. Right. So, so, but, but that's what they're offering. And that's to entice nurses uh, to actually fill that gap, right? So if they see that, then it's like, oh, that, that's great money. That is great money. I'm not, I'm not by any means saying it's not, but how long are you able to sustain that? Mm-hmm. Xavier, how will the profession address the, the diversity issue in terms of travel nurses? If 70, over 70% of them are white. Uh, about 12 percent, a little bit less than are African-American. Um, and so and also how does the politics of certain states in terms of some of the anti-vax that there's maybe sometime in the registered nurse profession um, that can be addressed in terms of moving nurses around? So that's the first question would be to how to address the diversity in travel nurses to give them the opportunity to be able to make more pay, to be more financially mobile. And then also the politics of moving around as a travel nurse. Yeah. So um, in terms of diversity, um, anyone who's an RN, you know, uh, African-American, white, Hispanic, doesn't matter, ethnicity, can apply to be a travel nurse. It is a personal choice. Um, I think what's happening now, though, is that because of the salary I mentioned, it's more appealing. So more nurses are leaving institutions to enter, you know, travel nursing that whole career. in terms of diversity in nursing, it has been an issue, an ongoing issue, that we don't have a lot of African-American nurses. So we do have the National Black Nurses Association who has you know, various initiatives to recruit and increase the number of African-American nurses in nursing in general. Um, and then to your second question in terms of politics and all of that in different states. I hope I'm, I'm answering your question correctly. Um, you know, depending on your agency, who you work for, they make sure that you are equipped with the knowledge of um, restrictions and standard of care uh, in order to practice safely in that state. All right, then. Well, look, uh, we certainly appreciated uh, you joining us and uh, shedding light on this uh, very important issue. Uh, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. All right, folks. I uh, got to go to a break. We come back. We'll talk with a uh, 15-year-old entrepreneur out of South Carolina. Uh, we'll also, of course, uh, share an interview with you that Bishop De- Archbishop Desmond Tutu did in 1984 when he won the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, one that uh, I think you will certainly uh, enjoy as well. You're watching Roller Martin Unfiltered right here on the Black Star Network. Back in a moment. It's time to be smart. When we control our institutions, we win. We win. This is the most important news show on television of any racial background. Y'all put two, three, four, five, 10, 15, 20, 30 dollars on this and keep this going. What you've done, Roland, since this crisis came out in full bloom. Anybody watching this, tell your friends, go back and look at the last two weeks, especially of Roland Martin Unfiltered. I mean, hell, go back and look at the last two days. You've had sitting United States senators today, Klobuchar and Harris. Whatever you have that you have, you can bring to Roland Martin Unfiltered to support it. Please do, because this information may literally save your life. Watch Roland Martin Unfiltered daily 
at 6 p.m. Eastern on YouTube, Facebook, or Periscope, or go to RolandMartinUnfiltered.com. Support the Roland Martin Unfiltered Daily Digital Show by going to RolandMartinUnfiltered.com. Our goal is to get 20,000 of our fans contributing 50 bucks each for the whole year. You can make this possible. RolandMartinUnfiltered.com. All right, folks, charges against a white Indiana man who drove his SUV into a group of Black Lives Matter protesters have been dismissed. Joshua Carey completed the requirements of a pretrial diversion program and had six months to meet the following criteria. Admitted he committed to three offenses as charged, two counts of leaving the scene of an accident, and one of criminal recklessness. He did not commit a criminal offense for 180 days. He paid a $274.50 diversion program fee within 30 days, and he completed 24 hours of community service at a nonprofit. Of course, he drove his car through them in September 2020. Uh, look, we're going to see more of this, but the problem is you've had people pass these laws in these red states, uh, Xavier, basically saying that people are immune uh, from being charged if they drive through protesters. Xavier, you there? Xavier, can you hear me? Uh, Mustafa, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Uh, go to you. I, what, I mean, look, we, we, again, these laws have been passed, giving people the right to run over protesters. Yeah, well, you know, we continue to lose our humanity, and it's being driven by many of these laws, the ones that you just called out in a number of red states. So we're going to end up losing more people's lives. You know, it has all been put in place because they saw the power that the Black Lives Matter movement generated by bringing so many folks out of bringing enthusiasm, but also accountability. And because of that power and because the huge numbers of people who were willing to get engaged, they had to figure out a way to actually sort of stamp that down. And that's where a number of these laws have come uh, into place. So now they're just putting more people, and we all know that a car can be considered a weapon, um, especially if you, you run into somebody, you kill somebody. We saw the sister in Charlottesville who lost her life. Um, so, you know, we, we really got to get this stuff in, in, in check um, because if we don't, more people are going to get injured and more people are going to lose their lives. Teresa? Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I, I think the protesters, um, one, they need to be held accountable, but also they need to ensure that when they are protesting, they are doing it the right way and the safe way. Um, I think sometimes we miss the point when it comes to protesting. And part of it is the delivery of how the message is being handled. Being handled. So um, looking forward to more protesting, uh, more standing in uh, attention in order to get the right action for the issue or the solution. Xavier. A couple of seconds ago, how Oklahoma passed a law to protect motorists who drove into protesters. We So you have legislators that are openly wanting to punish protesters by basically by making vigilantes out of citizens. Then when I have McCloskey's over at the RNC and then you have judge judges that protect people like Kyle Rittenhouse from going and shooting protesters. That's the type of country that we're living in. And then a guy gets to go through a pretrial diversion program and throw his hands up like, oh, I, it's like it never happened. Um, we can't. That is anarchy. And that is a side that is producing and and, and basically radicalizing a certain segment of Americans to go and make black people and people who support black causes targets. 
uh, let's talk about the story out of uh, Illinois where a family is demanding answers uh, after their loved one was found uh, hanged before uh, Christmas. Chicago police are calling this a suicide, but the family of Irene Chavez, 33 years old, they're not buying it. not quite sure exactly what happened to my sister. I did my best to look out. I visited the headquarters. I asked detectives questions and I hit a red light, a stop sign, a door every single time. And now I'm here to just really put out there that my sister was found hung in the third district police department and holding while bounded apparently. And I'm not quite sure how something like that could happen. I do know that Chicago Police Department is here to protect and serve. And that comes with taking care of the mental state of the people that they take in. I'm not quite sure what happened with my sister again. But I do feel that if she had been found at a bar and maybe had some drinks, that maybe the Chicago Police Department could have protected more. Uh, independent investigation is actually being held by the family to investigate uh, this death. Let's go to Kansas, where the family of a black teenager, they're trying to understand the circumstances surrounding his death. An autopsy report released Monday contradicts an earlier preliminary finding that says 17-year-old Cedric Lofton hadn't suffered life-threatening injuries. Following a physical struggle with staff at the Kansas Juvenile Center, the black youth's death is now classified as a homicide. The report reveals Lofton's heart and breathing stopped after being handcuffed and placed on his stomach. Lofton had briefly been in custody when his altercation with staff members took place on September 24th. Uh, he died two days later uh, in the hospital. Uh, that is certainly um, uh, a sad story there. So we'll uh, give you an update uh, on that story uh, when we uh, get more information. Uh, all right, folks, uh, going to go to a break. When we come back. Uh, marketplace segment sponsored by Verizon, a 15-year-old entrepreneur is opening her own salon. We'll talk, tell you about her pathway to being an entrepreneur. That is next on Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Alexa, play our favorite song again. Okay. I only you know how some carriers give you so little for your older busted phone you just end up living with it? I don't think so. Verizon lets you trade in your broken phone for a shiny new one. You break it. We upgrade it. You dunk it. Doggy bone it. <laughs> Slam it. Wham it. Strawberry jam it. We upgrade it. Get a 5G phone on us with select plans. Every customer, current, new, or business. Because everyone deserves better. And with plans starting at just $35, better cost less than you think.
Folks, she's shipping orders of barrettes uh, and plant-based hairstyle products to all 50 states and 13 countries. Now, 15-year-old Gabby Goodwin, who is the CEO of Confidence, has, own, uh, has launched her own salon. She joins us now from Columbia, South Carolina. Gabby, how you doing? Uh, can you hear me? I can. Sorry, I was muted. Um, I'm good. How are you? All right, then. Uh, so first of all, before we get to the salon, uh, let's talk about, uh, you know, what you've already been doing. Uh, when did you actually start your business and when did you start selling yes. products? We started Confidence, which was originally known as Gabby Bows in February of 2014 when I was seven years old. And then we've now been in business for almost eight years. Wow. And so how, how did it start? It started honestly off of a Twitter rant. Uh, my mom would go to the store every two or so weeks buying different barrettes that wouldn't stay in my hair. And she was very frustrated and not only losing money, but also wasting time, not only going to the store, but also, also doing my hair for 15, 20 minutes before school. And then she would drop me off and I would be picked up with bows lost and my hair just looks an entire mess. And with that, she went on Twitter to rant about how my bows didn't stay in my hair. And after her and many other moms were talking about how terrible these ruts were, our pastor actually jumped into the conversation and said, sounds like a marking you need to break into. And my mom told me I was about five years old when this idea came up. And obviously, one, I didn't want to, you know, get in trouble or continue to get in trouble for losing my barrettes. But I've also always wanted to inspire people and especially girls. And I saw this as a way to do that. So I nagged my mom into creating a barrette and creating a business and the rest is history. So, uh, and so, so, so you did that and y'all been growing the business, uh, and look, you're shipping to 56, 13 countries. How are you doing revenue wise? Yes. How many, how many employees do you have? And yeah, so for the past three or so years, since I've, uh, was in the sixth grade, our business has made six figures. So I've kind of coined the hashtag of six figures by the sixth grade. And we've uh, right now, especially in 2021, prioritized employees and hiring people. Uh, so we just brought on about three different team members uh, when it comes to either fulfillment or uh, team management, or even also just dealing with customers and customer service. So we've been able to grow our team as a whole, but we also have you know different contracts with people, especially black owned brands who are helping us in many different areas as well. All right, so now you've opened this salon, uh, why? We wanted to create a space where girls can, you know, feel not only feel confident in themselves, but also feel confident in their hair. And I think that with the salon, we're able to not only help girls get their hair done, you know, feel beautiful, but they're also able to see the behind the scenes of the business you know, see the fulfillment process or even meet me sometimes if I'm walking around the office. So we really wanted to create a place where girls can get their hair done because I know that there's not really many uh, little girl salons because it does take a lot of work, but we were able to create a space where girls can come, you know, have fun, but then also learn about business or just see what's going on behind the scenes and just have the whole confidence experience. All right, questions from my uh, panel. Uh, I will start with you, Teresa. 
Yeah. Hey, Gabby. I really honestly don't have a question, but I just want to say I'm very, very proud of you. Um, it does take a lot of ambition, a lot of creativity and vision. Um, being a little girl myself, I know I would have loved a shop like yours other than going with my mom to her hair salon. <laughs> right. um, it's one of those bright ideas that I think more people should, you know, open their doors to you. So if you're looking to come in Philadelphia, please reach out. Yes, we're definitely looking to franchise and definitely that is a, an opportunity that we would love to take as well. So thank you so much. Uh, Xavier. Gabby, I'm so proud of you. I have a 16 year old daughter, so um, it, it, it's really great to see. I literally text them as during this segment, my, my, my two youngest kids. And I say, you're never too young to start a business. You've been in right. business for eight years now. Did, in your beginning of your journey, did you expect to your following your vision would not would then give jobs to people and impact the, their families and communities and create pathways um, and being a great black woman entrepreneur? Yes, I've always seen that uh, or inspiration or you know, aspiration, I guess. I've always wanted to be able to you know, do that and not only you know, be a light in my family, but also in my community around me and just around the world as well. So I definitely really wanted to be able to create jobs for people, be able to inspire girls to look like me to, and help them know that they can do whatever they want to do. It doesn't matter, you know, how old they are, or how, um, you know, if they're black or not, or just there's many stereotypes that I feel like a lot of black girls go through, especially in the workforce. And especially, you know, if you're a young entrepreneur, you can go through a lot. But I wanted to be able to show girls and still want to to this day that they can also be CEOs just like me. And we've not only been able to do that, you know, by selling our products, but we also have a academy our Mommy and Me Entrepreneurship Academy, where we have 50 or over 50 girls who are selling our products under our brand. So they have their own business and they're learning different entrepreneurship skills. And through that, we're able to help them you know, grow out of their shell like I did uh, through entrepreneurship and just help them learn things that they can you know, use when they grow up and either work in the workforce or work for somebody else or even start their own businesses and work for themselves. So I definitely wanted to be able to create opportunities for many different people. And I'm glad that that's becoming a reality. Mustafa. CEO, good one. Uh, I, I like the way that sounds. Um, what has been the, the greatest lesson that you've learned um, in the time that you've been leading your organization? The greatest lesson that I've learned is just to be confident in myself. I mentioned before that confidence has really, or my confidence has blossomed through entrepreneurship. And before everything kind of got big or our um, business started to gain traction, I was really shy uh, growing up. And I was not, I didn't really want to talk to people that I didn't know, or I was just really quiet. And in business, you have to be the opposite of that. You have to go outside your right or go out of your way and talk to people, uh, especially at, you know, vendor shows. And we started that route early going to vendor shows, you know, every single week. And through that and also doing interviews, speeches, I was able to kind of grow out of my shell and really be the person that I am today. And I'm glad that I've been able to do that uh, and learn because, you know, 
if I didn't have entrepreneurship as my, I guess, outlet for my confidence, I wouldn't have been able to, you know, know how to speak in front of people or how to be confident in myself, especially as a young black girl. And also just another thing that I also came up with, this is a quote that I came up with when I was probably about 10 and it is no, it's just an abbreviation for next opportunity. And I've been able to also learn that because, you know, even though I may be young, I may be cute uh, and people want to support me, there were a lot of no's uh, heard, you know, in this process. And there still are no's that I hear on a consistent basis. But I've always learned that or I've learned over time that even if you hear no, that doesn't mean it's the end of the world or the end of your business, but it can be, you know, a next opportunity for your big yes that you're waiting for. All right, then. Uh, well, Gabby, uh, certainly congratulations. Uh, first of all, where can people go online uh, to see your products? Yes, yeah, so you can go to GabbyBose.com. That's on the screen. It's G-A-B-B-Y-B-O-W-S.com. We are also in uh, some online retail stores. You can go to Bloomingdale's.com, Target.com, and we'll be partnering with Macy's.com next year. But then there's also different retail stores or local beauty supply stores uh, around the world that you can also find on our website, too. All right, then. Uh, Gabby Goodwin, CEO of Confidence. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thank you so very much. All right, folks, uh, uh, some sad news. The NFL just announced a legendary broadcaster. John Madden has passed away at the age of 85, died unexpectedly uh, this morning at his home uh, in California. He set the gold standard uh, when it came to broadcasting. But before that, he, of course, led the Oakland Raiders to uh, a Super Bowl title. And so uh, John Madden uh, has passed away uh, at the age of 85. Uh, let me thank uh, Teresa Mustafa and Xavier for being on uh, today's show. I want to thank uh, all uh, all three of you uh, for being with us as we, of course, been focused on uh, today's news. Um, I'm going to go to a quick break. We come back. I want to end today's show, folks, uh, with the interview done with uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu after he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1984. We want to share that with you uh, as we uh, reflect on his passing at the age of 90 on Sunday. You're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered right here on the Black Star Network. study the music yeah. you get black history by default and so no no other craft 
could carry as many words as rap music. I try to intertwine that and make that create the whatever I'm supposed to send out to the universe. A rapper, it, you know, for the longest period of time had gone through phases. I love the word. I hate I hate what it's become, you know, in, in to this generation, the way they visualize it. It's narrative kind of like has gotten away and spun away from, I guess, the ascension of black people. For the Nobel Foundation. Hi, I'm Eric Nolan. What's up, y'all? I'm Will Pack. I'm Chrisette Michelle. I'm Shaley Rose, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. What, in your opinion, makes a good leader? What qualities? Ah, yes. It's a question that uh, we've had to deal with quite a bit, uh, looking at some of the leaders we have had who have sometimes uh, led their countries into disastrous situations. I think, ultimately, you want a leader who is also a servant. I mean, really, uh, the leader is is a leader because he is a servant. I mean, you look at some of the greatest leaders, Nelson Mandela is, is someone who is not in it for his own aggrandizement. He, he leads on behalf of, for the sake of. That is one. And it almost always is that the great leader will show just how he is uh, or she is a, a, a leader for the sake of the lead by suffering. A person who is a servant as well, that is, yeah. that is the ultimate. I, for, for me, yes, that you, you are not one who is seeking self-glorification, uh, who who wants to feather his nest. Uh, I mean, just look, say at, at, uh, at, I mean, you can look at Mother Teresa or any, I mean, Mahatma Gandhi, the Dalai Lama. Uh, you'll see that uh, a great characteristic is they are doing something, yeah, sacrificial in a way for the sake of those they are serving uh, and suffering. Well, the Dalai Lama has been in exile for 50 years. Nelson Mandela was in jail. Mother Teresa lives with the poor. She lived with the poor. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi, you could go on. Uh, Martin Luther King. Uh, and then the, the grist leader is someone who is inspiring, inspires his followers, her followers, Aung San Suu Kyi. I mean, she's said nothing very much for 11 years, and yet she remains the only real leader in, in, in Burma. Uh, why? 
uh, that somehow the leader uh, is encapsulates and 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 somehow uh, represents the best that is in the in the people the aspirations of the people um and 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 yes it is someone who can inspire what makes a good student then a good student yeah <laughs> who learns all of these things <laughs> but also questions you know someone who is not just passive sitting there and 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 has things thrown at them but they 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 question in south africa one of our big problems was that our education system seemed to tell people what to think instead of teaching people how to think and 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 saying we want you to have questioning minds we want you to be in a sense skeptical skeptical you must you must say i don't believe this until i i have proof that uh, that satisfies me that that is so we mustn't we we have often confused authoritative with authoritarian you know the authoritarian says you must do this because i say so authoritative says well prove whether it is true or not uh, and and because this one has built up a credibility when they say something you say ah yes <clears throat> this person when he says I want you to try to forgive. Uh, he speaks authoritatively because he has gone through a process himself where he showed that he could forgive. In the same line, what makes a good and working environment then? Ah. Well, I I would I would hope I mean that it was a life enhancing environment there are far too many situations where uh, you would say they are life um, threatening many of them certainly they they undermine the good life mm-hmm. uh, I I would I would hope you could be you would have a, an an environment that uh, encouraged uh, curiosity being inquisitive and and trying to seek out the truth um but it must also be an affirming an affirming environment which which um enables people to feel affirmed uh far too frequently you find leaders who uh, are 
scared of the abilities of others. They, they are threatened by the ability of others, and so they tend to throw their weight around. Uh, so we, are, we go back to what is a good leader. Uh, the good leader is so self-assured that he, he, he does not need to, to keep showing off his power. Uh, he has an, an authority that is ultimately a moral authority. And so you, the, the good environment is an environment that is, that is affirming, that encourages others, that builds up, not one that is forever denigrating and belittling others. When you were given uh, or received the Peace Prize uh, 1984, it was at the height of apartheid and you were at the stage of, of leadership in South Africa. What did it mean for you personally to be, be receiving this award? Yes. Uh, at about that time, South Africa was virtually off the radar screen in the world. And we were feeling somewhat disillusioned, disheartened. Apartheid seemed to be going to be there forever. And the Nobel Peace Prize came at a very important time in helping to reignite our people's hope. The world is watching, and the world recognizes that our, our cause is a just cause. It is a noble cause. Uh, and it came at a, at a time when it was important to focus attention on our situation, and that is what it helped to do. Uh, the other thing was that it helped to to open doors that previously were closed. Uh, I had been trying to get an invitation to the White House uh, and up to that point had failed dismally. But as soon as it was announced that I had been awarded the, the 1984 Peace Prize, word came from the White House. I didn't have to ask them. They said, oh, the president will receive you in the Oval Office. Um, and I have sometimes said to people, too, one of the funniest things about getting the Nobel Peace Prize was that uh, you were turned into an instant, uh, you, you were turned into an instant oracle. Things you said before you got the Nobel Peace Prize uh, and which people had ignored. When you repeated these things now, after getting the Peace Prize, oh, oh people said, oh, oh, isn't that, everybody was paying uh, attention uh, that they hadn't previously done. Mm -hmm. What did it mean at, at, at home in, in, in relationship to the apartheid regime? Were you not afraid or at times that they would try to stop you being as forward as you were? Yes, but I mean, that was part of, as it were, the 
normal course of things. Uh, that if you are involved in a struggle, you you realize, I mean, that there are going to be casualties, and uh, the perpetrators of injustice uh, would want to deal with you, uh, and so you 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 just had to to be prepared for that. Uh, but the the the, the Prize also obviously increased our our profile mm. and possibly helped to some extent in protecting us. Mm, mm, mm. Were you born a rebel, Rouse, or do you think? As the title of the new autobiography is. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm actually very shy. Uh, you know, people. People don't believe this, that uh, I, in a way I was self-effacing. And I don't remember that I, I was, uh, uh, well, rebellious, no. In fact, I was quite a nice young guy. Um, <laughs> mm. uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I look back and say, when you compare us with, some of the things that you young people have been doing. Oh, I was very docile. I mean, very, very docile. Uh, I mean, look at how long we accepted uh, inferior education, uh, whereas uh, young people in 1976 refused, oh. uh, you, you know. No, I, I don't think that uh, I, I have a rebellious streak in me. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very dull and uh, uh, very safe. <laughs> <laughs> but you made people see what was right and wrong in that apartheid yes, system. Yes. And and how? What is your driving force? Uh, I always say to people that I became a leader in the struggle against apartheid by default. Um, our real leaders were either in jail or in exile or serving uh, banning orders and so forth. Um, I I just, I mean, I, I really am amazed at how God can use uh, almost any kind of instrument. And I was one of those instruments that uh, God used in our, in our particular situation. And uh, it's been a very great privilege, yeah. Do you think that um, the Peace Prize in any way have made you, um, that there comes with, with a a task for the future oh, as yes, well. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful privilege and honor, but it also has obligations. I mean, and, and sometimes we have tried uh, uh, to recognize that uh, you know, no longer as it were belong just to yourself. You, you, to some extent, are now a servant of, of the world. And, and and for instance 
uh, a few years ago as Nobel Peace Laureates, we said we wanted to go and see our Samsung Chi in Burma. Uh, and, and we were not allowed. We went to Thailand. But it, it was a, a corporate action on the part of uh, Nobel Laureates, Peace Laureates, uh, acting together on, uh, for a specific purpose. And generally, we have we have uh, seen that we have a voice that the world tends to listen to when, when a number of us get together and, and, and make a statement about a particular issue. The world does take it, I think, very seriously. And, and we have now and again uh, done that, mm. you know, um, uh, come together as Nobel Peace Laureates and said, let us issue a statement. You, you have uh, engaged yourself uh, in, now in the Darfur conflict, to, for, some, for example. Yes. What, is that part of your, your worldwide peace work? Yes. As you probably know, there was a, an initiative called the Elders that was uh, uh, an initiative uh, of Nelson Mandela and Gracia Marcel. Uh, and uh, we are hoping as Elders, uh, you know, to say, well, this is a global village and Elders in the village are thought to be repositories of wisdom and experience and perhaps some authority uh, and we would hope that we would use all of these for the benefit of humankind and to look at uh, areas which are um, problematical, uh, which have conflict and see whether we can make a contribution. We hope we can make that kind of contribution, a useful contribution in bringing about a resolution of the problem in uh, in uh, Darfur. We were, were also going to be or are involved in Zimbabwe, Burma, mm. the Middle East, uh, you know. What, what, what other issues apart from the serious conflicts that we are seeing engage you today. I believe that you are also very engaged in, in environmental issues. Yes. Well, very recently we had a wonderful service in Tromso in, in Norway in the Arctic, uh, Arctic uh, Cathedral where uh, they had a service to mark World Environment Day and they they were speaking about climate change, and we had a woman bishop from Greenland who spoke about how uh, global warming was already thinning the ice, and and so they can't skate easily over the ice; it's too thin, so it's affecting their way of life. They cannot go hunting uh, as easily as they used to. And then they had someone from uh, the Pacific Islands who was saying that the level 
uh, of the sea was rising so much it was flooding uh, their their islands and they would it was destroying their vegetation the trees mm. because the salt water was seeping into into the roots uh, and then we they had someone from africa uh, who was speaking about how a conflict was arising in her community because of the scarcity of grazing mm -hmm. and and of course you know therefore part of the of, of the reason why there is conflict there is 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 that there is competition for ever reducing pasture uh, and and yes we are we we are very exercised by by the whole question of the environment uh, and 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 are saying we we need to um, impress on people that each of us can make a difference we can we can reduce the size of our carbon footprint uh, we can we can each be careful that we do not litter uh, and people can begin to learn that you can use globes that are less uh, expensive mm. uh, and do not use as much energy as the conventional ones incandescent uh, uh, globes and things of that kind yeah it is in this issue i think this, the children often in 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 the poor countries that are mostly affected, yet they are not the culprits of the global warming. How does that make you feel? Is that sort of anger that I see sometimes arising in you when you see how yes. unjust it still is? Yes, well, you, you are saying, I mean, uh, something that is important, that uh, unless we begin to be quite serious about the fact that actually we are one family, uh, we are constantly going to be running up against problems such as this where the wealthy might become irresponsible and the victims are not themselves, but the victims are the vulnerable, the poor. Uh, to say we are not going to be able to survive except together. We are not going to be prosperous except together. Uh, and and that we can we can spend as much money as we like we will never win wars against terror as long as there are conditions that make people desperate mm -hmm. yeah. and and one of these issues is is the environmental issue absolutely yes that mm -hmm. uh, the i mean if you are going to have less water i mean people are going to be fighting over diminishing resources uh, and the weaker are obviously going to be the ones who get the worst of that uh, argument. The strong will be grasping all they can uh, and we're saying there is still enough for everybody if we could have the good sense of trying to share.
I just want to say that what we have learned from South Africa is that there was a way forward by accepting the TRC and the, the that you have always said there is a need to forgiveness. Yeah. You have to. How do we as people then learn how to forgive each other? What what can you tell us? <laughs> One of the things is how do you learn how to swim? You don't learn how to swim by reading books. Uh, you learn how to swim by swimming. <laughs> and so you learn to forgive by forgiving. And all of us have at one time or another ha had to forgive. We know we know what it means to forgive. We we know what it means to be forgiven. And uh, let's just apply what we know. Okay. Thank you very much. God bless you. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.